Unlucky week 13 officially in the books and something happened this week that Kale's been waiting for for 13 weeks, which we won't step on now, but it was a wonderful time watching football yesterday. Kale, tell me about your NFL Sunday. It was tiring. It was so exhausting. Uh, I'm, listen man, we got finals coming up. We've, we've got a lot on our plates here. It's just nice that, it's nice that Christmas came 20 days early for me. (laughs) (laughs) It was a beautiful, beautiful day. Now, let's just touch on the weekend a little bit. We had a lovely Saturday evening at Kale's apartment. There was hot chocolate. There was peppermint. There was all sorts of stuff going on. I believe Kale was continuing to drink that hot chocolate for the rest of the day yesterday, too. Are you okay today? Do you need... I'm great. (laughs) I just... My social battery's drained. Uh, My body's 20% peppermint schnapps and creme de menthe. Uh, but I'm doing well. Uh, let's just get right into it. Right. I can't talk <laughs> very much. All right, we're going to talk football. We'll, we'll try to save your battery, uh, recharge the social battery for next weekend. Uh, but Kansas City Chiefs last night, they're the, they're the freshest thing on our mind. There's lots else to touch on. But the Chiefs win that game 22-9. They have now won five in a row. They're clear a game ahead of everyone in the AFC West and two games clear of the Raiders and Broncos. But I think we're all still so unconvinced about how great this team is. You could look at them like they haven't hit their stride yet. You could look at them like they've overperformed recently. Uh, Mahomes, no idea what's going on there. The stats, the advanced stats say he's been better than he actually has on paper. But at the same time, he's leading the he's second in the league in interceptions. The defense, kind of the opposite. Their stats look great the past six weeks or so, but we don't really think they've played any good defenses. So I just want to talk through some of our confusion here. It's not like to make a strong takeaway, but like, how do we make heads or tails of this Chiefs team? I I really can't, man. I, it's, it's so difficult for me to get a read on this team because on the one end, I'm still so deeply confident in – Patrick Mahomes, Travis Kelsey, Tyree Kill, Andy Reid, for them to figure this thing out and just do well. But every, like, the T- the Chiefs have now put together, what, a five-game win streak at this point? And I can't really make too strong a judgment either way on how that's come out. Since week eight, they have uh, their third in Ben Baldwin's EPA per play rankings. But look at the opponents that they've played. Since their loss to the Buffalo Bills, They've allowed 13 points to Taylor Heineke, 27 points to Tannehill and a healthy Derrick Henry, etc. Uh, 17 points to Daniel Jones, 7 points to Jordan Love, 14 points for Derek Carr in an in a objectively great game, great performance. Uh, 9 points to Dak without his top two weapons, and 9 points to Teddy Bridgewater. Offensive side of things, this team really still, like, despite 5 wins, this team hasn't in, in six weeks, they've had one good offensive performance, and that's come against the Vegas Raiders the week after the Henry Ruggs incident. And, and just a defense that plays exactly to the Chiefs' strengths. Gus Bradley, cover three, the just uh, the Chiefs have thrived on for years, and that's why everyone's doing these uh, these 
too high looks and getting these like really drop a ton of guys back into coverage and force a lot of zone looks. That's that's what slowed the Chiefs down this year. And the Raiders just happen to run the exact opposite defense what the Chiefs have thrived in for years. So I, I want to give the Chiefs credit. The Chiefs, like, the Chiefs currently stand as one of the three best teams in the AFC, and I think I can say that with some level of confidence at this point. However, this isn't, like, the Chiefs. You know what I mean? Like, this isn't the team that has gone to three straight AFC championships and two Super Bowls and just shocked the world and reinvented how we watch football in terms of an offensive perspective at least. This is the Chiefs. This is a good team. This is a good competitive team that I think is going to be extremely vulnerable in the playoffs. Because I, th- I'm very surprised at the level of offensive production that this team has put out. And we'll we'll see. We'll see what happens when the Chiefs team plays Derek Carr again with uh, Deshaun Jackson or a Justin Herbert or Joe Burrow in three or four weeks from now. But I don't think we'll see this team get, like, a real test until it's playoff time, until it's too late. And then, you know, who knows what this team looks like because I think this team really knows how to turn it on in the playoffs, too. I'm just really – I'm so confused. How do we work through this, Jackson? I'm so confused, too, and I'll try to help you. But I wanted to get a little bit crunchy, as you would would normally say, on one particular thing because I saw it again last night, and I thought to myself, like, how many times this year has – Travis Kelsey or Tyreek Hill, two of the best pass catchers in the league, dropped a ball that was extremely catchable and and somehow ends up in the hands of the other team. I've never seen anything like it this season. Mahomes has 12 interceptions. I'd estimate that seven of them have gone off his teammates' hands. It might be higher. It's insane. That one off Kelsey's hands last night, I mean, you can argue Mahomes, quote, threw it too hard. I I wouldn't argue that. Hill's got to have the hands for that. So I, I, I saw this graphic, and it was like, this confirms everything I've been thinking this year. It's a chart of EPA impact from drop passes, and this only goes through weeks 1 through 12. So this doesn't even count last night. And EPA impact, meaning like how many expected points have been lost from drop passes so far this year. Number one in the league, Travis Kelsey. His nine drops have equated to slightly over 21 points lost. Number two, Tyreek Hill, six drops, just over 20 points lost. And you have to figure that Hill drop interception last night was at least like three more points lost, something crazy like that. So these are the number one, number two guys in the league at losing their team points because they drop passes. And it's not particularly close with who's behind them. It's Austin Eckler, Jamar Chase, Hollywood Brown, and then a huge drop off after that. But the most baffling thing is that you can still make an argument that this is the best wide receiver, best tight end in the league, and maybe the best wide receiver in the league in you know given circumstances. You can at least make the argument for it. There's a Devonte Adams. There's Justin Jefferson, you can make a lot of top 10, top 5 yeah. arguments for wide receivers. I'm not making any high. arguments for Hill based on what I've seen from him this year, but you not still this know year, but I'm saying it's in years there. past, you absolutely sure. can just his elite speed, his do it all. For uh, one game with the right matchup, he can absolutely torch you in ways that other guys just can't. This is, I don't know if Pat Mahomes like broke a mirror or something. I don't know if he like, <laughs> didn't throw salt all over his shoulder when he spilt it. But like this is unprecedented levels of bad luck that he's seeing. Yeah. And it's why I get scared about them figuring it out in the playoffs. But at some point, this team doesn't – like how much benefit of the doubt do I deserve to give the Chiefs? I, I, after everything that I've seen from them over the last 
three years under Mahomes' tutelage. I, I want to give them all the credit in the world. And they did even in the beginning of this season show that they had, you know, the ability to hang 30 points on teams and things like that. It's a, it's a, they've made a massive correction since they were, the defense was averaging 30 points a lot per game. And the offense was at least able to keep up in those games. But man, like this is a complete, it, this, this Chiefs team looks completely differently. The ESPN page says like the Chiefs offense is a shell of what it used to be uh, as a major headline, a bit clickbaity in my opinion. But yeah, this <laughs> is like they're not wrong. Like I, I'm, I'm still on like the Sammy Watkins. Like they need literally anybody to be a third weapon on this offense. I remember we thought Josh Gordon was going to be like, oh, like maybe unlock something, pushes people down depth chart. Absolutely not. Has not done anything this year. No, uh, but. Like, this team is still so capable of figuring this out, and it's so crazy to me that they haven't yet. In six straight weeks playing against decent defenses, I think the Packers the Packers and the Broncos are the two best defenses they've played against so far. And even the Broncos, like, felt a little banged up at points. Like, it just, I don't know. It's, I think they can run all over the Raiders and Chargers the next couple weeks. I think they'll be able to reestablish their passing game based on the fact that they'll probably be able to get ahead of the down and distance. I think what was maybe encouraging from last night was that Edward Zillaire kind of looked like a threat in the running game again, and you double him with Williams, all of a sudden they're they're sort of a team that can maybe run the ball a little bit. So I think they they get right as an offense against those next two teams, and if they don't, that's when I really start to be – I mean, I'm already level 10 confused with this team, but if they don't put up somewhere between 28 and 35 points against both the Chargers and Raiders, then I just throw my hands in the air and say I'll never be able to figure it out. Now we come on to some bigger picture items. Let's start with the AFC because there are currently six teams with a record between 7-5 and five and 6-7. and seven. And I don't know what to make of any of those teams. And <laughs> there might even be some teams above those teams that I also can't figure out at all. Uh, so if we're just going to break down the AFC based on what we saw yesterday, I think there's two games that kind of shift the picture that involve two of these teams, the first of those being the Ravens and Steelers, and the second being the Chargers and Bengals. So let's start off with a little bit of Ravens-Steelers talk. What the heck? <laughs> what is up with the Ravens' offense? We addressed it last week. It looked even stranger this week. And then they lead what appears to be a game-tying drive, go for two, Lamar misses a wide-open Mark Andrews on the goal line, and they lost a game they had no business losing. They gave up 17 points to Big Ben in the fourth quarter. Lamar looks pretty terrible again in the passing game for the second week in a row. Uh, had one interception, could have had three or four based on what I saw. And once again, like Devontae Freeman's getting a lot of carries and not really doing anything with them. And you start to wonder, like, is the lack of running backs what's going to be ultimately the undoing of this offense? I disagree in saying Lamar played terribly. I think at this point he's just being asked to do too much without much help in return. This team's had so many injuries at this point. Uh, just deeply, deeply concerning. Uh, like, both sides of the ball, the run game is decimated, their secondaries in shambles. This team is really just asking Lamar to like, does that mean we're like it's just poke with a stick? Come on, do something. Like, <laughs> Lamar's ru like still running 
a bunch every game. He's throwing 37 times. He, you know, he still put up 250 yards, but, like, you could tell, like, just how much he's trying to get stuff done when he's got seven sacks. Like, that's not totally on him. That's partly on him. That's partly on him trying to hold the ball, but he's holding the ball also because Ravens' passing routes are having two guys run in the same spot and, like, guys aren't getting open. And did you know that whole last drive – uh, Rashad Bateman just wasn't on the field. And I understand that he's a bit green. He's been banged up. He hasn't been 100%. And, like, you're trying to get him integrated. But are you telling me that Rashad Bateman isn't better than Devin DuVernay? Like, are you telling me that he's not going to be a legitimate weapon on this team? You can't find him snaps anywhere on that drive. You're having Patrick Ricard get just as many targets. Your fullback is getting just as many targets as your rookie wide receiver, who's an incredibly dynamic athlete. Like, I understand that, like, there, there's parts of this team that aren't working. I think this offense really needs to retool, and this team, I think we can both somewhat come to the conclusion that they're not as good as their 8-4 and four record may suggest. Uh, they've had a bit of an easier schedule. This is still an extremely talented team by every measure, but this team, like, this team's offense is a big problem right now, and it's... They, they've now struggled for several weeks now putting points on the board. I still think about that Dolphins game. They only put 10 points up against the Dolphins defense. Uh, the Tyler Huntley game is another, you know, that's you could wipe that off. But even that Browns game where Lamar had four interceptions, just talking about how he looks like a rookie. They, it's just it's just really confusing. Like, I, I don't want confusion to be the theme of the season here, but, like, <laughs> it's just we're, we're going to look at AFC playoff picture in a little bit right after we finish talking about the Ravens, but I don't know what to make of two of the current division leaders that look like they're probably going to walk away with the division just based on like how much time we have left in the season, where team like where matchups currently lie. I just and the Ravens have speaking of which, the Ravens have a gauntlet coming up. They now go up against after that Steelers loss, they face off in Cleveland against the Packers in Cincinnati against the Rams and then the Steelers again. Like, say what you want about they shouldn't have gotten that win, but that's a, like, even that last Steelers game, that, like, you think Ben Roethlisberger wouldn't love to play spoiler in his last ever NFL game? You think that Cleveland isn't feeling a little bit fired up, getting spurned out of that 16-10 to 10 loss, or Cincinnati looking to prove something? They already talked about, like, Time is now like times have changed, old man. Like the, the Bengals <laughs> old are looking. Old man Lamar. <laughs> yeah, the uh, future. What, what's that, uh, Malcolm in the middle line? The future is now, old man. Uh, yeah, like they, I mean, this this whole division's looking to come for the top of the Ravens. It's probably the most contentious outside of the NFC West, honestly. But the Ravens are in trouble. The Ravens' offense is deeply in trouble, and I don't want to write this up as a lost season. But, man, am I excited to watch them in 2022 is all I'm saying. (laughs) Well, one last note on the Ravens' offense. I don't want to beat a dead horse too bad, but their wide receivers, all four of them combined yesterday, had 17 targets, which is as many targets as Mark Andrews and Devontae Freeman had combined. So if you can't find somebody out of Hollywood Brown, Sammy Watkins, Rashad Bateman, Devin Duvernay to – get open downfield to create some space for Lamar to throw the ball, then I don't know exactly what you do, but you got to change something. No, but positional versatility is a thing you can have. Like, I mean, as, as Patriots fans, like, how many times have we enjoyed watching, you know, the ball get thrown to a James White or 
a J.J. Taylor or any of the tight ends that we have. Like, the wide receivers don't necessarily have to be the focal point, but it's it's just across the board a lack of quality skill position players or a depth of skill position players. I don't think necessarily it has to focus on, like, tight end and running back need to get less snaps than wide receivers if – Devontae but these Gr- are not the two guys. Like, like Mark Andrews is an above-average tight end, but not an elite one. And Devontae Freeman's a below-average running back. So if you're targeting these guys that much, I find that to be an indictment well, he's on wide not, receivers. He, he averaged nine yards per target in the passing, or uh, nine yards per catch in the passing game. So like, but per works target? Out, no, per target. Not per target. Uh, per target, five yards. Per barely target. five. Yeah. Uh, but still, like. That's a, that's a considered a successful play given like regardless of downs five if you're getting five yards on a catch that is literally the definition of like a positive play in success rate terms so like it works it's just yeah no but you need like I wouldn't say like stop throwing to these guys you need more out of Marquise Brown you need more out of Sammy Watkins you need to figure out a way to get Rashad Bateman involved this team has it like this team is right there. And I think I think before, you know, they lose they lose Humphrey, they lose uh, their safety at the beginning of the year that whose name escapes me. <laughs> uh, it's just like they they had the tools, they had the dudes, and I get it. Another year comes and goes. Like you're only losing time before like you've got to pay Lamar that bag. But it's just a like you can do this. Like it's so, it's so close. You're right there. Well, let's let's talk about the rest of the AFC then. There's that Bengals Chargers game yesterday. Uh, a little bit of a 2020 redraft. You know who's the who's the top dog from this quarterback class in a matchup between Justin Herbert and Joe Burrow. And I don't know. I think we saw different things from each of them. Herbert kind of looked like himself for most of the game, or his 2020 rookie self that lit the league on fire. Burrow looked bad at times, looked really good at others, played through a rather large swollen finger, and you can make a case that the Bengals were right there about to win that game before the mix-in fumble. On the other hand, the Chargers put up 40 points on the road and won a huge playoff-type game. So I don't exactly know what that game says about either team or these two quarterbacks, but I know it was very watchable. Oh, it was a blast to watch. And what is actually really interesting is Depending on who you ask or, like, what you're looking at, you get things out of different quarterbacks from that. Like, they, like they both kind of did their own thing. Like, if you're looking at EPA per play numbers, like Ben Bolton does the box scores uh, that I think are really good. Uh, his EPA per play on dropbacks, 0.23 to uh, Joe Burrow's minus 0.15 EPA per play. Uh, Herbert had an 8 out of 10.7, so he's actually, like, really targeting downfield now, which has been awesome. He had a CPOE of 14.6%, which is just awesome. But if you look at Dan Orlovsky's Twitter after the game and said, film, 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 Joe Burrow outplayed Justin Herbert in that game, and it was an extenuating circumstances that led the Chargers to win by 19. I don't know how you come up with extenuating circumstance to explain away three touchdowns worth of points. However... You get different things out of different quarterbacks. Uh, that being said, if we're still focused on this big playoff picture, like I like, like it's crazy. I like both teams. It's it's so, it's so middle Matthew of me to say that like I like both. Let me be the centrist of the football analyst party, but it's just I don't 
I don't think any wild card team is making a splash in the AFC this year just because of how deep the skill level is. And I think, honestly, right now, my my favorite like wild card eligible team in the AFC isn't even currently in the playoffs, and that's the Colts. The Chargers and Bengals are both very strong. I, I'm, I'm really confident in both of them, and man, was it a fun game to watch. It was an absolute shame that my... Fubo blocked it out, and like my whole networking issues, like I couldn't watch it beyond red zone. But man, was it fun to follow along and watch after the fact in condensed film because that was just it was a blast of a game. Yeah, I don't think either team in this case should feel like don't be comparing your quarterback to the other guy in that game because they've both kind of built the roster, built the offense around them, and. Even though one team won, the other team lost, I think you can take positives away for both guys based on what you saw. Like, Herbert lit it up, EPA numbers off the charts, traditional stat numbers off the charts. Burrow, you know, turns the ball over a couple times, throws a bad red zone pick, but gritted through an injury. Uh, He's developed this great connection with Chase that we've talked about, and Chase honestly had some drops yesterday that made me... Uh, not worried, but you know he's he's got some things to clean up. And again, if Mixon doesn't fumble, Burrow was in the process of leading a drive to fully overcome a 24-point deficit with some time left in the fourth quarter. So I don't know. I like, but I'm I'm on the same page with you in that I like both of these teams, and I want to see how it plays out. But I'd be nervous to play either of them in the playoffs if I was one of the top AFC teams. Yeah, if we just want to get right into it, AFC picture, it's just. <laughs> the Chargers, the Chargers scare me a lot just because I, I think at their peak they have such a dynamic offense, but I think they get hindered by, sometimes by Joe Lombardi calling a bit more of a rinky-dink check down, like not a, not exactly aggressive offense. I've talked a lot about, I've talked once about Mike in the past, like how they've gone from using Mike Williams as like this massive deep threat. They're targeting him on 30-plus yard passes three times a game, and that fell to one time a game in the middle of the season. Now it's back up because he's actually like being targeted downfield and producing. Uh, Austin Eckler gets used a lot, but like Jackson said, his drops have created the third most EPA lost. Uh, I think your defense is super top-heavy. I've talked about that on a Football Outsiders live stream with Aaron Chops before. Uh, it's just like they've got Derwin James, they've got Bosa, they've got Asante Samuel Jr., deeply overperforming uh, rookie expectations, who's been absolutely special. But beyond that, like, who do they have? Like, this team needs depth, depth, depth. And their top-end guys can get it done, but I don't know. A playoff a playoff push is all about depth. So that, like, you can win a game, you can't win the Super Bowl. Bengals, I think of just, like, I love them. I, I think they're very fun. I think the Burrow to Chase connection's been awesome. And I love the white striped tiger pants that they're wearing. Uh, that they wore in that game. Uh, I would give Chargers Bengals my uniform game if they didn't just absolutely, if I didn't abuse the Chargers uniforms week yeah, in and week out. a little timeout from the Chargers. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, they get a moratorium <laughs> for the rest of the season. Mommy. But know that they are an honorable mention. But yeah, like Bengals are good, but I still think this is this is a team that absolutely like. Let's talk about this: Chargers, Bengals, Steelers, Colts. And let's go all the way down. Raiders, Browns, Broncos. Dolphins. Dolphins also. So each of these teams sits either between 7-5 and five and 6-7. and seven. Outside, like, Dolphins, Broncos, it, the bottom half of that are frisky, but I would not 
I wouldn't put them in a reasonable playoff picture to me. I, I think I'm not doing that with the Dolphins yet, and I'll, I'll get into why in a second. But. I, I'm going to completely <laughs> refute anything that comes out of your mouth. That being said, of these top four teams, Chargers, Bengals, Steelers, Colts, I'm the least scared of the Bengals. I feel like a good game plan can run this team off the road. I am the least scared of the Steelers. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> but the Bengals are right there as well. Yeah, the Steelers... I don't know. Something about Big Ben is just like, oh, you can't count him out. <laughs> and it's also like free TJ Watt from that defense. For like, real, for real. Uh, man, I we'll get into it. But so you're gonna say like of the of the teams in that six to thirteen grouping in the AFC, you think the Chargers and the Colts are the two best teams if they make the playoffs? Yeah, I think that I think those are my two teams, and I'm scared more of the Colts than the Chargers because I think the Colts are much deeper and more. I, I wouldn't say they're better coached, but I trust Frank Reich more than rookie Brandon Staley, and that's nothing against uh, the accomplishments of Brandon Staley as a rookie head coach or anything along those lines. I just think Frank Reich is one of the most underrated coaches in football and has done a really good job putting this whole team together and just top to bottom, even with the weapons that this team sort of has. Uh, it's you know there's not really many big name wide receivers on the Colts. They they're working behind one of the best offensive lines, but they've been banged up. That being said, and with even like Carson Wentz at the helm, who is the definition of volatility. Uh, the highs are, the highs are high and the lows are low, but they're awesome, man. They're they're a really good team, and the Colts are going to have some tough sliding ahead to get in. You know they're facing an uphill battle right now, but man, are they fun? Yeah, uh, so that's that's where I I bring back the Dolphins, and I. I don't really believe the Dolphins are a threat, and I think they'll trip up along the way and somehow still miss the playoffs. But you think about what their schedule is right now, and they've played, uh, they've won five in a row against terrible teams. So you think the the run of terrible teams they play against has to stop, right? Like they they've got to face a real team sometime soon. I'm not so sure because next they go to the Jets, who they've already beaten on the road. Now the Jets come to them. Then they go to the Saints, who I don't know who's playing quarterback for the Saints, but Taysom Hill, Trevor Simeon, they're both terrible. Uh, There's not really something that scares me there. They go at the Titans. You think, okay, if they have Brown and Jones back for that game, the Titans should be favored, but maybe they don't. Who knows? And then that could leave them at 9-7, and heading into a game with the Patriots in Miami, where the Patriots always struggle and something weird always happens. So there's a... It's not a likely path, but there's still a path there for the Dolphins to somehow win out, go 10-7, and seven, and all of us to be saying, how the F did we get here? Yeah, but they feel so one-dimensional, man. Like, they just feel so lame. Like, they're such a lame duck. Like, it's just, I don't, I don't care about them. And they can sneak in. I won't respect them. Like, I no, just, me neither, but they'll be on a nine-game winning streak, and it'll be just one of these crazy anomalies in the National Football League. Yeah, it's fine. There's, there's also got to be some – here's what it is. They're four and five in the conference, and their next three, three, three of, of their the next four. If they go four. If they go four and oh the rest of the way, then, yeah, they're seven and five. But seven and five, like the Colts are six and three right now in conference. Like things that have to go pretty, pretty bad for nine – if you if you think of where we're at right now, Char- like Chargers seven and five, Bengals seven and five, six and five, seven and six, this this six and seven team is not going like a lot of things that have to go wrong in this AFC picture for the Dolphins to sneak in. I also love that last week you made a whole you you planted your flag and said yeah. I'm not going to care about a team 
with less than six wins. The Dolphins pick up their sixth win in that process, and all of a sudden you're leading the Miami charge. Oh, I'm not believing <laughs> it. I said I'm not buying in on any of these teams. I'll still talk about them and be wildly entertained by their storylines, but in terms of, like, believing, and, and I'm still planting that flag on the Chargers and Bengals, too. Like, I'd be scared of them, but I'm not believing in them. I'm not, like, taking the Chargers to go on the road and beat anyone in the playoffs because mm-hmm. I still think there's that tier of separation between – them and the real contenders. And the same holds for Miami. I don't believe in them at all. However, with that remaining schedule left, I could see a world where they get to 10-7, and 7, and I think 10-7 and 7 makes the playoffs in this conference. So um, I'm just not putting it out of the question is the only thing I'll say, and I think it's wild. Tua, we, we'll, we'll, we'll save our Tua talk for another time, but the fact that he's incredible on RPOs and terrible at everything else is just so baffling, and I can't seem to think of why he can't improve at something besides just running these RPOs over and over again. it's offensive line. It's, it's the fact that, like, RPOs create deception and get defenses back. Like, they mess with your head, and it forces the defense to take a half second of pause, and that half second is giving... Tua Tagovailoa just enough time to breathe and literally that's all he needs to complete a four-yard pass. Yeah, when Logan Ryan makes a comment and says, I'm a lot like Tua, I can throw two-yard passes to the left, that's pretty indicative of how poor the Dolphins' offense is operating. However, that's mostly because he doesn't have time to actually set up deeper stuff. Tua Tagovailoa has an average of time to throw of 2.5 seconds. That's second fastest in the entire football league. This guy has defenders breathing down his throat at all times. He has no one blocking for him. He has one of the worst offensive lines in the league. And the Waddle connection, Devontae Parker will come back and form. Like, these guys will come back. Like, they'll have a better setup next year. But, like, they need to do a Chargers-level overhaul of this offensive line for Tua to, like, actually stand a chance. Because we don't know what he looks like because you need to have so much trickeration involved to actually get it going. But I don't want to, like we said, we could do a whole pod on this 2020 QB class, honestly. Like, there's so much to say, and I think there's going to be a bit of revisionist history if we actually get some better things coming out of Miami in 2020. If they decide to hold on to Tua, which I think it'd be crazy for them not to. Yeah. Just just at where they're at this point, like... Even a godfather offer for uh, the Texans quarterback that's currently in legal trouble uh, wouldn't make sense for this team just for where they're at developmentally right now. And they would push him over the top, and it would, you know, this team's sitting around 500, but like, do is good. Do is good. Just give him someone to block. Yeah. Well, let's shove the 2020 QB class into a time vault for another podcast in that case. And. Let's get to the thing that gave you the most joy, really both of us, the most joy of anything we've seen all football season. Folks. And yes, it finally happened. It happened. Dan Campbell and the previously 0-10-1 Detroit Lions won a football game on Sunday. you're going to see a write-up from me tomorrow on Football Outsiders in the Any Given Sunday column. And I have the absolute pleasure and honor of writing about this game. Dan Campbell, I've made the I've made the comparison before. Dan Campbell is the Ted Lasso of football. And it makes no sense because Dan Cam- or T- Ted Lasso is a football coach that so went to play <laughs> soccer. But and the but the whole premise was he was too abrasive, he was too dumb to coach soccer. Uh, and F- Campbell was like that in football. Uh, he comes in biting kneecaps. He comes in talking about having a pet lion and 
like put, setting up a graveyard in the back of the uh, facility, like making it all spooky and stuff. I I thought he was a meme. Is is double coffee, like his insane coffee order, his everything that he does. I thought was just a meme. Yeah, I, I was gonna was, I was gonna make you drink his coffee order if they didn't win a game all season. So twist I'm glad my they got freaking it off. arm. I love caffeine. <laughs> I need it right now. I wish I had Dan Campbell's coffee order to get me through, but. It's, like, the more we've seen from him, the smarter he is, the more you respect him. He's one of the most analytically-minded coaches in the league just because he understands just fourth-down aggressiveness is what you need to win this sport sport at this point with a roster that you have. Dan Campbell is one of the highest-ranked coaches in CCI, which which is critical call index. Uh, It's a metric by Edge Sports that measures decision-making in head coaches. Uh, and you're coming to learn that he's got a better sense of the game that we have uh, than he's had in the past. He is also one of the better head coaches at actually hiring coaches of color into his coaching staff in a league that desperately needs uh, head coaches of color. Uh, and also, he realizes that this just the game of football is a game, and it's bigger than football because in his first win. He dedicates the game ball to the Oxford community after the school shooting at Oxford High School. Just what a just an awesome guy. Like, how can you not root for Dan Campbell? How can like how does watching Dan Campbell at a press conference cry about his players or calling out Jared Goff for like, you know, and even like being considerate and calling him out and understanding the circumstance that Goff is in? But like, how do you not like watch this guy on the sidelines or see him in a press conference and just root for him. Like, how do you not want to pull for this guy? I understand, like, shit happens on Thanksgiving where he fucks up some play calls and, like, doesn't like mismanage, mismanages clock. I was, look, I was kicking myself thinking that they were going to do the exact same thing when they had no timeouts left with a minute 50. But, like, man, how do you not pull for this guy? Like, he's truly and honestly, like, one of my favorite coaches to have rooted for in a long time, just to follow around like week in and week out in the league just because like I I don't like rooting for bad teams I like rooting for interesting teams I like rooting for like young developing teams so I hopped on the Chargers last year but like even then like I didn't want to watch an Anthony Lynn run offense I didn't want to watch like this Chargers defense and special teams just hemorrhage games while Justin Herbert kind of threw some tepid balls and like I don't get enjoyment out of the 2018 Browns where, like, you know, Baker Mayfield's hopping and leading this team and they still go winless or whatever. It's just a matter of, like, this is a fu- – like, the coach makes this team so much more fun. And I'm so happy that I've decided to really invest myself in this team. You hear the raw emotion in Kale's voice when talking about this guy. And I'll admit, he's fully won me over, too. I mean, especially – Watching you watch him every weekend has just seeped into me, and I, I can't help but root for the guy. Uh, I just want to describe the scene in Kale's apartment yesterday when the Lions won this game because not only did they win, they won in the most dramatic fashion you could possibly get your first win of the season. First off, they go for it on fourth and one. They use the Dan Campbell aggression model, and Jared Goff drops back loses sight of the blitzing linebacker who literally only went one foot by him. He's like, oh, I'm just good now. And then the guy obviously comes right back, strips him. Vikings get a touchdown, and they leave too much time for Jared Goff. 
and all of a sudden he's marching back down the field. Dan Campbell didn't use all his timeouts this time. He saved one for just the right uh, time at the last uh, – he saved one for the final drive, and they get to the 14-yard line to run one last play. St. Brown ends up wide open at the goal line, and we'll we'll touch on that whole can of worms later in head scratchers, but – just the way they were able to get it done. You saw Dan Campbell wrap up Jared Goff in a bro hug, and then, of course, they have to shove each other away at the end of it because that's how bro hugs end. But it was just so fun. And in in Kale's apartment, Kale actually reacted the least strongly of the three people who were there because I think he was just so dumbfounded that this had happened. But I jumped out of my seat, started screaming, and then started swimming on Kale's couch. Or... And then, then started swimming on Kale's carpet. Ari Harris, who is our third friend in the picture, jumped out of his seat, started yelling, and then fell into Kale's lap and just started hugging him. And Kale, you're just sitting there the whole time completely confused as to what had just happened. So why don't you talk me through your emotions? Oh, it was fully – I missed it. That was the full <laughs> thing. I So the way my apartment set up is uh, we – I have a two-TV set up in my apartment just to watch, you know, take in all the games. Uh, one is a quad box from NFL Sunday Ticket. The other is a main feed uh, from Fubo, but because uh, of certain blackout issues that I was having, uh, I couldn't get games on. Like I, I couldn't watch Chargers Bengals, for example. So, in, so we had a quad box set up of different games, and we had Red Zone going. So Red Zone was following uh, the Lions game, but flipping back and forth to games that were still going on. And then two games in my quad box had flipped over to Lions-Vikings at that point. <laughs> so we have three screens, have potentially. Three screens. <laughs> I'm watching the two on Sunday Ticket that are behind. And they're about to set up the Amon Ra uh, St. Brown touchdown. Jackson and Irie are watching the Fubo Red Zone stream. And that is like four seconds ahead. So I hear screaming and flip over. And they're in the end zone. And I'm just like... <laughs> I'm half I'm half dumbfounded that it happened, half in shock that I missed it. So <laughs> it was beautiful. Hats off to Detroit, man. Uh, what a what a great moment for sports in general. Uh, and I'm glad that they did it on the weekend of the Oxford shooting. That's a terrible tragedy that um, you know will only continue to send our best out to the folks involved in that. But hard stop. Congrats to Dan Campbell. Let us talk about some game balls from yesterday, starting in. Atlanta, where the Bucks just keep rolling, and we're going to give out our third Tampa Bay game ball this year to a third offensive player. Uh, Kale, why don't you set the stage for us? Uh, yeah, Chris Godwin. Uh, just volume, man. Like, Brady's thrown 51 times. He's about to, he's, I think, within, uh, he's within 100 of setting the record for most uh, completions. I think he already has it from his past attempts. I forget what the order is of those. He has one, doesn't have the other, but he's close to getting both of them. So, but he's he's a 44-year-old man throwing 51 times for 368 yards and four touchdowns. But this isn't about Tom Brady. This is about the fact that, listen, the Buccaneers threw to one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine different players in that game. Chris Godwin had 17 targets. And Mike Evans, yeah, had 10. But Chris Godwin going 15 for 17, 143. Miracle, didn't find the end zone with how he was playing. Uh, Gronk kind of vultured him on those. Had two of uh, Brady's four passing touchdowns. But, man, what an effort. Just all around, it's crazy this Buccaneers team just can keep finding different people to go to. Gronk is back. 
AB is going to be back in a couple <laughs> weeks whenever the vaccine card injury, whatever, his whole mess works out. Uh, this team is, like we've said, is not going to get another primetime game the rest of the way. Uh, they are mostly getting NFC South games the rest of the way. They do have that Bills game next week, uh, but then they play Saints at Panthers at Jets versus Panthers. Uh, so they're not going to get much primetime, and this this uh, this Buccaneers team is honestly going to like sneak in a little underrated to the playoffs, and this team's only going to get healthier. Uh, this team is only going to get better. Uh, it it feels a little like 2020 and how they came in. Obviously, it came in different circumstances because they started out with a lowly record and then won, you know, whatever, five, six straight head in the playoffs. I forget however many they won. But yeah. uh, they this is, this is a really, really great team, and they're not being respected enough. And hats off to Chris Godwin for just balling out. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean... This team came in not just with those guys out, but some some real injury concerns. They've uh, they've already had their bye. It's not like last year where their bye was way towards the end of the season. So they're trying to get healthy on the fly and playing against you know a divisional slate where you know you take some chances, maybe give guys lighter volume some games, and sometimes you just need a guy like Godwin to st- step up and shoulder the load. And that's really what I think he did out there yesterday. So. No touchdowns, I don't really care. I'm more than happy to give him a game ball for the effort he put forth. And transitioning from volume to just pure entertainment value and joy, uh, my offensive game ball goes to Gardner Minshew the second of the Philadelphia Eagles, who, yeah, they only beat the Jets yesterday, I get it, but Gardner Minshew looked like an NFL quarterback out there yesterday. He was standing tall. He was accurate. He was poised. He, uh, you know, coming into a game where you only find out midweek that you're going to start, you know, it's it's hard. It's hard to get yourself prepared to be in that space. But I think Minshew's whole thing is he's just prepared for any situation. And you look at the guy's career stats now, Kale. He's he played on that same Jacksonville offense that Trevor Lawrence is right now, and he's got 39 career touchdowns and 11 interceptions. So I mean, I'm not saying like give the guy the bag, but Dude can play, and no, he really ob- lit it up. He's objectively, like, better than most quarterbacks getting starting opportunities, namely, like, uh, Taylor Heineke or someone along those Definitely lines. Definitely, like, like Tyrod Taylor. Uh, no, let's put some respect on Tyrod's name, please. Who got benched for Davis Mills at halftime yesterday. Uh, <laughs> what are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he, like, he, Gardner Minshew's awesome. And the video of him, like, hugging his dad at the end of the game is awesome. Him showing up in the in the fighter jet, uh, or the, uh, like, the bomber jacket to take on the Jets. Uh, just some peak, some peak Gardner Minshew humor. Uh, I, I love the guy. He's, he's really fun to watch. He's always been awesome. He's always been a, a big contributor to Weekend Quotes for me. Uh, the meme the meme got a little tired of when he would go full mustache and handlebar, and, like, it, it, it got a little bit wearisome, but... Man, he's a fun quarterback to watch. And if he if his ceiling is like Fitzpatrick-esque, where he can start for some teams for stretches, be one of the best backups in the league for other stretches, I don't know where that lands him. I don't know. that And that's still life-changing money he's going to be able to make for him and his family because that's still in the millions of dollars range. But he's got a long career of him. 
I don't know if he goes. I don't know if he sticks in Philly. I don't know what he does. But well, like, how many teams have wide open quarterback slots coming up next year? We like, can't do this. We can't do this, this argument again. We're not doing this right now. But I'm just saying, like, there are plenty of teams. It's that like can a be third. A, fit. a third of the league could use Gardner next yeah, year. Yeah, he shouldn't be. He shouldn't be signed to just be a backup. Like someone should bring him in to compete for a starting job if they're not able to if capitalize gets, on like, a free agent. Listen, like his floor. It's crazy to say because it was obviously a massive, massive, massive overpay by the Chicago Bears for this. But his, his floor should be Nick Foles' contract. Like, his floor should be, like, <laughs> 20. Like, you're not paying a backup $20 million a year. Like, you're not paying him to take some hill money. But, like, he deserves, like, he deserves, like, a good contract. Yeah. Eagles fans listening to this right now are no, so confused. Yeah, they're so, they're <laughs> they don't so know what to think about what you just said. Deeply upset by this talk, but, like, <laughs> he's a good quarterback, man. Yeah, I don't know. Give, give him the right tools, and he's, he's a good plug-and-play guy. All right. Uh, you've got – I'm going to give you 60 seconds to just gush about what T.J. Watt did yesterday for the Steelers. He's everywhere. Yeah. He's just everywhere. All right, this is, this is Michael Birch. On Twitter, uh, at Steelers PR Mike, TJ Watt, six tackles, six QB hits, which tied a career high, three and a half sacks, which made a career high, three tackles for loss, and one forced fumble. He had three and a half of Lamar's seven. He had literally 50% of Lamar's seven sacks. He is just everywhere. Like, He's a man among boys. It's just it's like, incredible. It's, it's the fly flying around your kitchen. That is just you. You constantly run into it, and it's just a constant nuisance. No matter what you do, you just can't kill a thing. Yeah. It just keeps getting back up, keeps flying in your face. It's it's awesome, man. It's this is he's the heart and soul of the Steelers defense. Really, they, the whole team, if you ask me. There's I think there's like five five players ever in the history of the league, including J.J. Watt, <laughs> that have had more career sacks through the first five years uh, than T.J. Watt has. Like. DJ Watts can be a threat for a very long time, and it's, it's so fun to watch him just continue to develop, and I hate that it's on the Steelers because that's just a small personal bias on my part. <laughs> but he rules. He just what an absolute defensive menace. Yeah, I mean, we probably – we've talked about him somewhat on the pod this year. There's probably not enough good things we can say about TJ Watt. He's going to be one of the final two or three guys in the discussion for Defensive Player of the Year. Not just this year, but probably for many years to come. And very deserving of the giant contract he got. So, hats off to TJ for his day yesterday. My defensive game ball is going to be less of a box score moment and more so just giving a guy credit for making one game-changing play. So, we talked about Bengals-Chargers. There was a 24-0 Chargers lead, and the Bengals chip away, chip away, chip away, and all of a sudden it's 24-22. The Bengals have the ball near midfield and are driving with still 12 minutes left. So you figure all of a sudden, not only could the Bengals take the lead, they could run away with this thing if they score on this drive. And just when everything seemed to be hanging in the balance for the Chargers, they were on the precipice of losing this game. One Christian Covington, he breaks through a block right at the line of scrimmage. uh, Number 95 on the Chargers, just a big old bowling ball, and reaches his left hand out as Joe Mixon's going by and just swipes at the ball. And how many times do you see defensive linemen do this and it just doesn't mean anything? But he put his hand just in the perfect spot that all of a sudden Joe Mixon just throws up all over himself, falls on the ground, and just rolls right into the hands of Tavon Campbell, picks it up, runs 45 yards with it the other way, and all of a sudden the Chargers are in the driver's seat once again. So do I know anything about Christian Covington? No, nothing at all. 
Do I think Christian Covington is typically a guy who's going to be one of the best defensive players on the field any given week? Also no. But this is one of the biggest plays around the league all week, and I felt like I had to step up and give the guy credit for it because I really think if that if Mixon just runs for like two yards on that play and doesn't fumble, I think the Bengals honestly win that game the way momentum was going. Momentum's a real thing in the NFL too. I mean, you you don't have to look into advanced analytics or anything to know that momentum changes pretty much everything. It's it's why the twenty eight to three game happened. So uh, without that play, I think we're talking about all these things that we touched on in the AFC completely differently. It that game was so close to being like Chargers completely blown, just another like weird loss for this LA team, and r- immediately got like you forget how close this game really was. Honestly, like the win probability graphic is just a perfect curve. Like it's trending toward Chargers, trending toward Chargers starts crashing all the way back down back to Bengals and then right after that fumble just spikes right back up to eventually hitting Chargers 100%. Just a really really interesting sort of dynamic and yeah, like we said, it wouldn't have been indicative of quarterback play, I don't think, but that that one fumble just shifted the entire perception of our conversation 20 minutes ago. Yeah, and look, you can even say like that fumble is 95% on Mixon which maybe it was because it's not like Christian Covington like smacked him down and jarred the ball out, but he got his hand out there just at the perfect moment, and I think that just made so much of a difference in that game that I felt compelled to give him the game ball. So I did it, and we're going to talk about special teams now. Listen, you know I love the, the good old home run play, the dinger, <laughs> just the absolute freak plays that happen on special teams. Uh, I bring them to you every week whenever they happen. Yeah. And I what's f- another word for home run slash dinger, Kale? Homer. Travis Homer for the Seattle Seahawks. A direct snap 73-yard touchdown run. This snap goes, first off, if you watch the replay, this snap goes at like a 45-degree angle straight to Travis yeah. Homer's Can we, get, we might have to, to give right it to the side. long snapper instead of Travis Homer based on Listen, how this play it, went. It's a 50-50 game ball, but I'm giving it 100% to Travis Homer because I don't know the name of the long snapper, <laughs> and I won't look it up for the sake of time. For pride. <laughs> the, uh, no, I mean, no, respect the long snappers. Long snappers need respect, too. Uh, the, but, yeah, just it, I, don't, I guess this is something that Seattle had to have snuffed out understanding that they had this uh oh this i guess guess what number the long snapper wears it's the funny sex number oh gosh <laughs> uh i'm gonna look this up now you just said you weren't gonna look it up Gil. listen <laughs> tyler ott tyler ott uh tra- tyler ott sends a four- 45 degree angle snap to travis Hummer's offset on the left side uh and this 49ers uh punt block has or uh yeah punt there's block. six six guys on the line of scrimmage all pretty much between, like, within the tack. Like, there's, it's not tackles because it's further than that. There are more guys on the line. But I don't know where the other five Niners are on this play. <laughs> it looks like it was 7 on 11 for this. There, 13 runs into frame right at the end. Uh, but, like, there was just no coverage on this play by the 49ers here. So, hats off to Homer. It's probably the only time we'll talk about him this year. Because, man, was that a good play. And, uh, man, do I have no reason to want to talk about Seattle ever again this year. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I hate to 
burst your bubble, but we're going to have one more quick little Seahawks piece coming yeah, up pretty yeah, soon. Uh, I'm going to do my special teams game ball, though, and we're going to kick it over to Allegiant Stadium in Las Vegas where the Washington football team won their fourth game in a row. But since the Raiders had a drive to potentially go down and win the game themselves with 42 seconds left, maybe we forget that Washington needed a 48-yard field goal on their final drive to secure the win. And that kick was from Brian Johnson. Now, you think about what they've gone through with place kickers this year. Washington's gone from Dustin Hopkins. They cut him. And then they go to Chris Blewett, who has the name Blewett, so that wasn't going to work out. Then they bring in Joey Sly, who gets hurt last week, and they had to finish a game without a kicker. They almost lost because of it. So they bring in Brian Johnson, who had six weeks as the Saint starter this year and did terribly and got forced out of town. And he's got to be called upon his first kick that isn't an extra point to win the game, and he drills it. 48 yards, split the uprights. Brilliant job right there, on the road and everything. So it's only one kick, but it's the difference between them being in the sixth seed in the NFC and the 12th. So it's got to be, it's got to be my guy BJ for this week. Kickers are people too. I Like, it just... I don't know. Those, those, it feels like anything below 50 yards, fans take for granted as like just guaranteed, like pretty much like right in there. But no, that's a, that's a crazy, you're kicking a ball half the length of a football field in order to just win a game. The pressure on that is insurmountable. And I was convinced it wasn't going in. Oh, yeah. Just, just with their history with kickers, especially this year, I was. There's, I was shocked when I saw that ball go through the uprights. Had to give the guy a game ball yeah, for it. Yeah, in a single-season vacuum, they're kicking like this year is like Vikings-esque. Let us transition and speak about uniforms, and we're, we're missing all of our time posts this week. It's really pitiful, but we're going to keep plowing through. We're going to do uniforms quickly this week. The slate was a little bit strange, I think, because we've agreed that we can't do the Chargers anymore. And some of these games, some of these games that we saw yesterday were egregious, Kale. I don't I don't need to tell you the the Cardinals Bears game, one of the ugliest football games I've ever seen. And then you look at the Jags Rams I despised. I hate that Falcons uniforms. Like they were just like I hate Detroit's gray uniforms. So I didn't have much to choose from this week. I'm going to stick with the game I was just talking about, and I probably am burning my last use of the Raiders for this season, but it was just clean Washington against Vegas. Vegas in the black at home. Washington rocks with the uh, helmets with the numbers on the side, which is a touch I like. And just for whatever reason, I thought the the burgundy meshed well with the silver and black, and it's just a clean-looking game. So not like a – it was a week where a B-plus uniform game kind of gets you to the to – the, top spot on the podium and that's what it was for me yeah really weird slate uh the the moratorium on the chargers could not have come at a worse time (laughs) uh like i said they're probably my honorable mention my second honorable mention is the uh is the philly jets ball which is uh the two green teams wearing as little green as possible in their (laughs) uniforms which i thought was just very funny i did like the accents and how they blended together uh i think we're both sticking with our special team game balls for uniforms uh, for our, to double as our uniform games at least, because I'm going with San Fran and Seattle. Uh, these are the best Seattle uniforms in what is probably one of the my least favorite uh, uniform 
just fleets or flights in the entire league. Uh, the blue, the navy blue and lime green is very unique, and they've just never done anything good with it. Uh, but these are the most iconic of their uniforms. I do respect them. Uh, and I love these. I, I love these San Francisco Whites. I think they're really strong. I think a team that really accents uh, a white uniform with their primary and secondary colors is super strong. The gold helmets pop in these. Uh, it was just a very fun, dynamic game to watch. I know Jackson was a little impartial or uh, wanted, wanted a little bit more of the... Uh, yeah, I just wanted this to be the exact same uniform game as the 2013 NFC Championship, the Richard Sherman uh, sorry-ass receiver Crabtree game, and it just wasn't. I I don't like the Seahawks when they wear gray anything, gray pants, gray jerseys, all of it. I think when they wear their blue on blue, it's one of the times that monochrome is a necessary evil to me. And for the Niners, I do like these whites. I just wish in this specific matchup they had just gone traditional road uniforms because as we're kind of coming to the end of what we presume to be the the Russell Wilson, Pete Carroll uh, era here in Seattle, I just I just want to see, you know, some uh, play the hits. I just want them to, to wear the uniforms that I've become accustomed to seeing. So that's, that's my only complaint, but it was still a perfectly fine uniform game. Uh, Let's just do head scratchers. <laughs> we've been we've been holding it down the whole time. We haven't even criticized the Vikings for losing to the winless Lions yet because of how much we love Dan Campbell. But what the heck was that defense they were playing at the end yesterday? That Kill, was, break it down. Oh my god. So as I want that Dan Campbell thing clipped and somehow framed in audio form on my wall. That being said, uh this was Probably more of a Vikings loss than it was a Detroit win. I'd call if 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 Detroit won their first matchup against Minnesota, I'd call that a hard Detroit win. This is a Vikings loss. The coverage that the Vikings ran, just running prevent defense, like the Lions were about to throw a hail mary into the end zone. Uh, I believe the corners were set up four yards deep into the end zone. Uh, Amon Ross St. Brown, who caught the game-winning touchdown. Uh, a little Tuesday morning we- reading for you. This was his quote when being asked about the cushion. Yeah, it was actually crazy. <laughs> I think he was like three or four yards deep into that end zone. And shoot, I only need to get a yard or a centimeter in to score. So to see him that far off, I know it was going to be a good play. I just didn't know what was inside of me. Just how do you, like, Zimmer's got to be gone, right? Like, as, and Zimmer had this whole thing last year about how, uh, just how incompetent his defensive personnel was. He talked about uh, as not a me problem. No, it's it's. He, he said like, I'm trying to teach a master's class to kindergartners. He had a very inexperienced defense. And then he brings in Pat Peterson, who's a shell of his former self, and has also been pretty injured and just hasn't really amounted to anything. I don't think it's a Zimmer problem per se. But I think they need some hard change here because this defense has not. This defense has objectively gotten worse, or very, at very best, has been stagnant. Has just been still water in a, in an algae-infested pond, for defensive purposes. It has done nothing but just kind of just shrivel and die. <laughs> it's this is bend don't break at its absolute worst, and it kind of breaks week in and week out, especially considering how good this offense is and how little they've been able to do against a Detroit defense that's been pretty awful this year. 
Like, you got it. You got to be able to lean on your defense in one play. Like, how do you not just heels on the goal line, don't let anyone in? Like, how is that not textbook for what this is? The whole rub on Jared Goff is that if you pressure him, he crumbles, especially if you blitz him. But even if you just get any pressure, uh, the guy's been absolutely atrocious against the blitz. We saw it in the Patriots Super Bowl. We've seen it every game since. And on those final two plays, on the 14-yard line, so again, not a Hail Mary situation, the Vikings only sent three pass rushers. And somehow they still didn't have enough coverage, and somehow they still set up their guys five yards deep in the end zone. So we're not NFL defensive coordinator-level scheme callers, but that's just more of an indictment on you when you can draw up a scheme that perplexes us this badly. So it was it was head-scratcher-worthy to the nth degree, and I completely agree with all of your Mike Zimmer takes. My head-scratcher is a little bit less of a play and, <laughs> and just a performance that really left me scratching my head, really put me in this position to be like, I've never seen this on a football field before. So we're going back to Seahawks Niners, and... The Seahawks won, and we really rarely give head scratchers to teams that win. But the day that Gerald Everett had yesterday just needs to be looked at a little bit closer because Gerald Everett had four catches for seven yards, so that's terrible already. We're already getting no yards after contact. Two of those four catches he fumbled away. So negative 3.3 fantasy points if you're playing non-PPR like I do. And then he also was wide open at the goal line, got the ball thrown right into his hands and juggled it like he, his iPhone was falling to the ground in slow motion and then tipped it back over his head directly into the hands of the 49ers defensive back. So this is the day he had yesterday. Basically, he created all three of the Seahawks turnovers in a game that had seven total turnovers. So <laughs> if you if you take that out, the, the Seahawks romp. It was basically all on Jared Everett that this game was even close. And the fact that the Seahawks, we've talked all season about them having these two great weapons in Metcalf and Lockett and them just looking for any semblance of a third option, uh, I don't think Gerald Everett's that guy. So just a game that really, really left me feeling like it was a historical performance and not in a good way from the tight end position. Just so bizarre. Like, like it, sometimes football is just a game of bounces. You can't create those bounces by actively kicking the ball. <laughs> That's all oh, I have to say about it. Oh, buddy. Um, well, let's talk Monday Night Football. Uh, we could probably spend 20 minutes on this, and it's a game that hasn't happened yet, and by the time this podcast comes out, it will have. That's unfortunate because I know we want to give our our strongest takes about it. Let's just quickly go through. I, I think there are so many outcomes on the table for Patriots Bills on Monday night, and um, just quickly, Kale, like what if if the Patriots won? Why is that? Why did the Patriots win tonight? Uh, just out physic, like the Bills' defenses healed up a little bit. They were a little undermanned against that Indianapolis Colts, uh, Jonathan Taylor game. Uh, so. It's not quite the same matchup, but that level of physicality is going to really do some damage to the Buffalo Bills if they're able to get it going. Just the amount of size that the Patriots have on their offensive line, the amount of power that they run with in Ramondre Stevenson, Damian Harris, uh, they're just going to be able to outmuscle this team if the Pat- uh, Patriots end up winning. I think on the other side of the ball as well, Bills D versus Pats O, uh, this, Sean McDermott has always had Brady's number. Uh, in the last six games of Brady's career, some of the worst he's ever done against Buffalo. 
Uh, it just purely offensively, not even considering the outcomes that Josh Allen brings to the table. Uh, so we'll see how that affects Mac Mac Jones. I just forgot Mac Jones's name and called him Matt for a second. <laughs> uh, the ha, losing Trey White kills this team, and I think that's honestly going to be a bit of a difference maker there because making Levi Wallace CB one or you know bumping all these guys up a rung is really going to hurt the depth of this Bills team. Obviously, and it's a bit more of a skill mismatch. Uh, I still trust McDermott to at least try and hold him down a bit, but I think. I think this is really just a, a Pats team. If the Pats win this, it's a Pats team staying hot. It's I, I see more outcomes for the Pats winning this than I do Buffalo, despite the fact that this will be such a close game. Yeah, and let me take the other side of it now, uh, which I hate to do as a supporter of the Patriots, but uh, this is a Monday night game. How many of these have the Bills even had in the past decade? I mean, I know they've gotten a little more used to it in the past few years, but... That place is going to be jumping tonight. Orchard Park, it's a it's a small-ish, older stadium where the noise just gets insulated. And, you know, it's still Mac Jones' 13th game in the NFL. So Bills are also coming off a mini-bye, too. Going from Thanksgiving that. to Monday Night Football is basically, you know, it's, it's about as much extra time as you can get from Sunday to Sunday without actually taking a bye. Yeah, so I think just, like, if the Bills win this game, it's – Home field advantage, atmosphere, Mac Jones shrinks away from the moment, Josh Allen rises to the occasion. Maybe the Bills are able to get some semblance of a ground game going for once. I don't really see that happening based on the personnel they have, but it's not it's not completely out of the question. And I think that if it if it happens, we're just gonna be talking strictly from a narrative perspective about you know the big players here from the, the quarterbacks and the coaches and why Josh Allen was able to deliver an MVP-like performance in a season where he hasn't played up to his 2020 MVP contender status. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe this, uh, I, I think the most telling thing about this game is that I forget where I read this, but if uh, we're basically regardless of who wins this game specifically, uh, whether the Bills win this or the Pats win this, the winning team basically has an 80% chance of winning the division. And considering where Baltimore's at right now, it's going to be really interesting, the outcome, to see. Uh, if Pats end up pulling this out, New England sits at one, Buffalo goes all the way down to seven uh, in the AFC playoff standings, and then they, like, like we've already pointed out, Buffalo's got a tough road. After the Patriots game tonight, they go down to Tampa, and they've got a they've got an easy road and sort of the rest of the way. They got Panthers, they got Falcons, they got Jets to close out. But that other game, uh, that other game against New England, the day after Christmas, is uh, that's going to be that's going to be very telling for who wins this seat. Like it's it's I'm really excited. I'm really excited for the whole way. Just going to be a fun season. It's just going to be fun to see how everything shakes out. I am fading fast. I am. So I might fall asleep during this Monday Night Football game, despite how excited I am for it. All right. Well, we're stoked. Again, one of the worst things about having to do this podcast on this schedule is that we don't get to give you our reactions from Monday night. Uh, We try to make light of it as much as we can, but this is clearly the biggest game of the week. It's really the marquee game of the season so far, and we are so looking forward to watching it and judging it. Obviously, you'll move on to other coverage and you'll come to TMB just to hear kind of what our reactions were to the week as a whole. But so stoked to see this game tonight. And hey, we're fans of the Patriots, so 
We hope we're talking about a Patriots win tomorrow. And if, if we're wrong about a Monday night football game that we didn't watch, you get to listen in on Tuesday morning. Exactly. And just laugh along with us for yeah. the last five or so minutes of the podcast. It's really fun, okay? Uh, we love football, though. We love talking about it every Tuesday. We love all of you that tune in to listen to us, and we love just bouncing stuff off each other uh, in our text chain Monday night and in the studio today. So uh, glad you were here with us through what appears to be our longest episode yet based on the waveform. <laughs> we keep doing it. We keep one-upping ourselves. And, uh, Kale, it's been a pleasure as always. Oh, we just keep finding new things to talk about, new analogies to make, new insights to add. And it. we originally planned on this show being like, yeah, like in and out 40 minutes, 45 minutes. Now we're approaching like hour fifteen. Like it's it's getting uh, you know, maybe we're not gonna hit that this season, but you know, it maybe it just shows a level of comfort comfort from us in the studio moving on the season. We're learning things new every day. And I'm glad that I get to make sense of this insanely confusing <laughs> NFL season on a mic with my co-host Jackson Roberts and with you all listening along in your cars and on your phones and in your home. Nobody's going to see this fist bump that we're about to do, but boom. I hope that picked up. I hope so. <laughs> Thank, you guys. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for listening. We'll talk to you next Tuesday. For Kale, I'm Jackson. We'll see you again very soon.